Well, it looks like we're about that time, so let's go ahead and get started with prayer. Ron, would you open us tonight? Sure. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather again and, and to look into your word and to study about uh, things that are important to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us tonight that we might have clarity of mind as, as Mark teaches and uh, give him freedom of speech and, and let him just uh, call to mind the things that, that he needs to remember. And Father, we just thank you for the opportunity of serving you and for learning more about you. Help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have. Uh, <laughs> I've got one announcement before we get going. I guess our class was responsible for the cookies for the month of April. Okay. That's good. I didn't know that either. Oh, no, I didn't take care of them all. They were all signed up. So I turned Okay. Oh. Okay. So. So somehow, uh, somehow, it, April jumped up on us quickly, and then it's half over. Cookies or to eat cookies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm good at the latter. <laughs> okay, um, we are finishing up tonight this material on the covenants. We just ran out of time at the very last here when we we're talking about the basically our last page of uh, the covenants. And the question we had to ask and answer was how the church is related to the new covenant. And there's an enormous amount of debate on this. Um, so we'll, we'll answer, ask and answer that question, and then we'll move on to what was supposed to be our topic for the night, uh, which is uh, hermeneutics of dispensation, that is, means of the uh, method of Bible study employed by dispensationalists, and that's our theoretically our topic for the night, but we'll get a little late start on it. Okay, so uh, I believe you're on something like page 51 or so, is that right? Oh, 44, yeah, that's right, you're the other direction. 44, sorry. Uh, so 44, how what is the relationship of the church to the new covenant? The, it's the biggest box there. Uh, actually spills onto the next page. And I say here, uh, there's a number, well, we we should probably back up. I say the passages listed above. Uh, there's a number of passages that we uh, see above in letter D uh, before the uh, text box of all the references to the New Covenant in the New Testament. That would probably be on page 43 for you. Um, you can see Matthew 26, 28, Luke 22, 20, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 25. All three of these are the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, recounting of the Last Supper when Christ lifts up the bread and the blood and said, this is the new covenant. Okay, so all three of those are, are, are that. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, which is probably the most difficult one we're going to work with, which says, Paul says he's a minister of the new covenant. And then there's a series of passages in Hebrews that, that are detailing the nature of the new covenant. And what I'm going to argue for those is I'm not sure that it really gives a time reference in Hebrews as much as this is a discussion of what the new covenant is going to be like when it comes without expressly saying whether it has or not. Okay, So, how is the church related to the new covenant? If, in fact, we've, we've looked 
earlier, uh, Jeremiah, for instance, and a few other passages we've looked at it in the Old Testament, as we read through the details of the New, New Covenant, we found that it doesn't really seem to anticipate the church. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a covenant, we said, that is a Jewish covenant. It is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which seems to be very specific. It's not, this is not just two names of Israel, but rather it's the two parts of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So this is the covenant. It's going to be made with these two factions of Jews that are going to be uh, you know, re, uh, brought back together. Um, and so it's made with them. And then it goes through a whole list of details about what the new covenant is going to be like. Uh, animals are going to get along with people. Uh, there's going to be fantastic agricultural success. There's not going to be any drought or hunger in the world. Um, uh, you know, we uh, there's there's going to be astronomical kinds of things happening. The the, the sun is going to be uh, darkened and the moon turned to blood. Uh, and and a, we could we could really list these out almost indefinitely. There's just an enormous amount of material in the New Covenant in the Old Testament. And as we look today, we say, you know, I, I just don't see any of those things happening. Okay. And so the question is, how is the New Covenant related to the church? Is it related to the church? And what is the nature of that relationship? Covenant theology. Remember, we, we said the, the group that says here uh, that there is really only one covenant uh, with the whole of mankind that's sort of reiterated with with a few additions and adjustments as we go along, says, okay, the big adjustment here is the people group. Okay, Israel uh, has been effectively replaced by the church, or pro- perhaps more accurately to what they would say, it has sort of morphed into this new expression, this new covenant people of God that is the church. And so Israel and the church share in some sense, and perhaps even a complete sense, identity. And so, uh, even though the covenant says it's going to be made with these two ethnic factions, and it's going to have all of these physical uh, features, uh, in, in the end of the day, these are somewhat spiritualized. Uh, these are, uh, uh, um, they're, uh, the, uh, you know, when you see the abundance, for instance, uh, in, in, in the agriculture, we're talking something of, of, a, of a specific uh, for something general. The general is there's going to be you know, abundance. There's going to be wealth and humanity is going to flourish, uh, for instance. Uh, and so, uh, so the new covenant is being fulfilled today in a, in a complete sense. The new covenant is fully in, in effect uh, it's fully running, fully operational, and the church is the new covenant people of God. So the church fulfills it currently, uh, and uh, then, and then if you if you go to the to the uh, sort of the next phase here, we got the uh, progressive dispensationalists who say yes, it's being fulfilled by the church now, but it's going to be fulfilled by Israel, the original reference in the future. So. Uh, so the so Israel will eventually receive all of the new covenant blessings as Israel, but in the meantime, the church 
uh, the faithful people of God in the present day are enjoying it until the Israelites get their act together and submit to God. Okay? I say these positions have a variety of problems. Specifically, the covenant is made with Israel and no one else. The covenant is a unit and really can't be fulfilled piecemeal, partially fulfilled. Double fulfillment really violates the concept of authorial intent. We'll, we'll get a little bit more of that tonight when we talk about how to understand uh, the scriptures. Um, to have you know to have a promise made to Israel and then have it fulfilled by someone else, and oh yes, it's going to be fulfilled by Israel too, doesn't seem to fit. And I say it's also difficult to any, identify any provisions of the new covenant that are clearly in effect today. Sometimes appeal is made to the fact of, uh, of the indwelling spirit or regeneration uh, that seems to be perhaps more abundant or, or, or perhaps more, uh, more uh, evident today. Uh, but uh, as, as uh, we noted last time, those, those things aren't really new uh, to the to the new covenant age, uh, the, the there there was regeneration. There was even indwelling in the Old Testament. So what 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 is new does not seem to be the fact of indwelling or regeneration. Perhaps the 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 extent of it is is the is is new. Uh, there's going to be. In fact, what's the promise? The promise is that all Israel will be saved. That uh, I will put my spirit upon all flesh. So that they will all call upon the name of the Lord and serve him from shoulder to shoulder. Okay? But there doesn't seem to be, beyond that, and that's fairly slender, there doesn't seem to be any Old Testament specific promise about the new covenant that's being fulfilled in the church. And so it, it looks as though we've got something of, a, of an anomaly here. Because the New Testament seems to identify the church as a new covenant people of God but they don't resemble anything that's detailed for us in the Old Testament about the New Covenant. And that's, that's, that's troubling. And I think, we, I think we mentioned last time that when we're talking about a covenant, we're not just talking about some sort of a casual promise. Uh, the covenant is, is, is a very sacrosanct and sacred uh, arrangement that is made between God and Israel. Um, it's not, and I think we said, it's, it's not like me making a promise, hey, I'm going to take my son to the ball game, and, oh yes, your brother's going to come along. You know, at the last minute we, we sort of, you know, slip him into the car. It, it's more like we've got the last will and covenant of so-and-so who passes away, and it's, it's not subject to addition. It's, it's a, it's a, in order for us to have someone else added to your last will and testament, what do you have to do? Well, you have to scrap the old one and start over and, and, and make a new one. Uh, maybe maybe your lawyer can you know, cross out some lines and you can initial it. But you've got to actually have to make some sort of a new arrangement. Same thing, and, and perhaps even more more to the point is it's, it's much like a marriage covenant where you make a, a, a covenant with your wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, sickness and health, blah, blah, blah. And and you can say, well, you know, I'm making that covenant with you, but you know, there's another person I'd like to also bring into the covenant. You know, just, <laughs> that doesn't work. You know, maybe in our society it's 
it's acceptable these days. But that's not appropriate, and I and hopefully we're all we're all on the same page on that one. That that would be an inappropriate use of the covenant. And the same thing we've got here. So it just doesn't seem like we've got the church having a place in the covenant. So, what do dispensationalists do with these New Testament passages? Well, let me just say here that there are three options here. Obviously, I favor one of them, but let me just put three of them out here on the table as viable options that have been raised by dispensationalists. John Nelson Darby, we introduced him very early on uh, in our history section, uh, suggested that the church doesn't participate at all in the New Covenant. This is the plainest option when viewed from the standpoint of the Old Testament. Okay, So if you're looking at it strictly, if you're just reading the Old Testament text, it doesn't seem possible that the church could participate in it, and that's his view. Okay, So any of the passages that seem to suggest that, there's a, that there is a new covenant today, actually, if we revisit them with fresh eyes, we find that the, that the church is not really called of the new covenant people of God. We'll actually uh, look at some of those passages specifically here in a little bit. For more modern expressions of this uh, understanding and answers to these objections, see John Master and especially Roy Beecham. Roy Beecham teaches out at uh, Central Seminary in Minneapolis and has done an enormous amount of work on this, has, uh, has uh, written several articles, essays on this that, I'm, uh, that I, I think are quite well done. Lewis Ferry Chafer and many of the early Dallas dispensationalists, also introduced in our history section, if you can remember that far back, held that there were two new covenants. There was a new covenant that was made with Israel, and there was a second new covenant which was made with the church. So this solves the problem of the new covenant made with Israel uh, somehow being shared by the church in some sort of an illicit arrangement, they solved the problem by saying, "Well, you, you, you don't, you don't, rep, you don't." It's an easier solution just to say there's two new covenants. Okay, that's Lewis Sperry Chaffers and several of the early Dallas dispensationalists. It's not really held widely today. Uh, although I was really surprised to find out that uh, that uh, Charles Ryrie, uh still holds to that view. Uh, he he's, his book on dispensationalism has gone through three iterations. The first one he held to this view. The second one he gave up on this view. And the third one he went back to it. <laughs> so, so he's actually got the two new covenants uh, view. Um, then there's the third, and I'll sort of give you a really brief history of this. In uh, 1957, John McGahee proposed in a doctoral dissertation that the new covenant was inaugurated at the death of Christ. And while it has not been fulfilled by Israel... There's spillback benefits, if I can put it that way. The church participates, what he says, proleptically, as though it were already in place, even though it's not. Uh, and some of the soteriological benefits. So it's just some of the fringe benefits, not the whole thing, but some of the fringe benefits, uh, specifically those related to salvation. And just, just in, in, in the idea is it's much the same as the Abrahamic covenant. We are experiencing some of the blessings of it, through his one seed, uh, Jesus Christ, and so we are we are we are experiencing the blessings that are 
that are attached to the Abrahamic covenant in the church today, even though the Abrahamic covenant has not been fulfilled. And he says there's a, there's a similarity there. Uh, this view was popularized uh, by Homer Kent uh, at, uh, at Grace Seminary, and it was very popular during the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. So I would say it was the, probably the dominant view among dispensationalists during that time. Actually, in the last 10, 15 years, Darby's view has really surged forward again. There's a lot of there's a lot of interest in that, and uh, I would say I'll, I'll sort of let my you know let my uh, let my uh, view out. I, I hold to the the first view, which means that I have to explain why these passages that seem to talk about the new covenant in the New Testament as related to the church, how that works. So let's look at some of these passages. Uh, for instance. Uh, the verb here uh, in Hebrews eight, the, uh, the, uh, the new covenant has been enacted, which is how the New American Standard reads. Also, the King James has been used by some to say it has been enacted. So it's past tense. It has been enacted. It's actually uh, it's actually a perfect passive, which I'm not trying to bring drag too much Greek into here, except to say. That is probably not so much that it has been enacted, but it is enacted. So it's not so much, a, a, there's no real time referent per se, that, but rather when the new covenant is enacted, it is enacted on better principles. And so there's really not a time reference at all, except to say that this is the way the new covenant works. And so there's not so much a, a historical statement. And that, that takes... I would say that covers all of the Hebrews references. The second problem, of course, is the uh, is the, uh, the the Lord's Supper passages, where 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 Christ holds up the bread and the wine and says, "This is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you eat or drink in remembrance of me." And I say here, it seems best to see that the forgiveness regeneration and other blessings that accrue to the church as a result of the blood of Christ, this blood serves simultaneously both as a guarantee of the new covenant for Israel and as a basis for what are effectively non-covenantal blessings for the church. Okay, So remember, you have to remember that when he uses these words, he's, he's at the tail end of the dispensation of law. And, and they're looking for the solution to Israel's problem. And what does Christ say? Here's, here's the guarantee of the new covenant, right here. The fact that I died, the testator died, uh, has died. You know, remember the Doritos? We talked about that, the, uh, the animal that dies uh, in order to effect uh, the covenant. Uh, that, that's basically what he said. The Doritos has been slain, and the, the new covenant will come to fruition uh, because otherwise I'm saying that let me remain dead if the new covenant does not uh, does not uh, begin as a result of this of this death of mine however i, I would add here that uh, the uh, the covenant itself is inaugurated one remember we talked about this like 2 weeks ago this might be really you know, i might be stretching the brains a little bit too much here but what did, what did we say actually starts or jump starts the new covenant itself It's not the death of Christ per se. That makes it possible. In fact, it makes it necessary. 
But what actually inaugurates the new covenant is the oath. So that the people, Jeremiah 51.5, will come and enter into covenant with me on that day. And it's a it's an eschatological reference to at the second coming of Christ when the people of Israel will enter into covenant with God. And that's really when the new covenant begins. So Christ's blood it has more than one function. It makes the new covenant possible and necessary, but it also uh, offers us a great deal of symbolic value in the life of the church as well. You know, it, well, real value in that it, it saves us symbolic value in the form of the uh, the communion reference. Yes, is that I think I remember in classes it being specified that the death of the testator, the mm-hmm. the death of the one, you know, is that's necessary for the will to even be in, in effect. But we know from, you know, what I forget they call the, when, when a will goes in, uh, in probate, we know that the, the, the terms of the will are not, you know, they're not official until they're read. Or, or there, there's there's some legal process before it becomes official. Right. And so, like, just because the the one who put the will <clears throat> in, it, who, whose will it was, died, does not mean the covenant... And so, so that was like the, the example given. Is that? Yeah, there's a lot of debate as to what, you know, this death of a testator, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion that's been had over the last 10 years on that. And it, there's some question even whether all of that is, a, is, is completely a reference to Christ, that there may be some sort of a symbolic reference to what the... What passage is that again? Well, it's in Hebrews... Nine, I think. But uh, um, I, I, that's that's one explanation that's that's out there, and I think it works. I it, but there's actually a couple of other options out there on the table these days. Okay. But uh, but in in, in any case, uh, a, 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 like you said, a covenant isn't brought into effect by death. Now, death is necessary in order for us to be even thinking about a covenant, but it does. It is not the. It doesn't immediately inaugurate the covenant. It's and and so there's like for instance, you know, the splitting of the animals in two. Remember uh, Abraham? He splits the animals in two, and they lay there on the ground for a whole day. He's, remember, he's chasing off the carrion birds uh, that come to 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 feast on the on the sacrifice, and he spends the whole day fighting off carrion animals. And then that night, uh, God comes and goes between the uh, two halves of the of the animals, and the covenant is enacted. Okay, so there is a death, but the death isn't the oath. The, the, the death doesn't start the covenant. The oath starts the covenant. That's what brings it into effect. So... Excuse me, Mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you were saying that when Christ said holding up the cup and he said this is the you know this is the new covenant mm-hmm. you said that's that's basically what he was saying is that's the guarantee that that's gonna that's gonna take place yes I, I think that's 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 what he was saying was that the oath no that, that wasn't an oath no that wasn't the oath it's, it's just a statement here that the death my death is going to is going to give the impetus to the commencement of the new covenant. It's not so much a statement that the New Testament starts now. 
as much as it is, is this is an integral piece, uh, you know, it, I believe in his commentary on, on uh, Hebrews, um, Homer Kent says it's the last piece necessary to the enactment of the New Covenant, but he falls short of calling it the enactment of the New Covenant. But the, the, the okay, I'm just trying to piece this together. The New Covenant, though, won't, won't be in effect until what you said, Jeremiah 51, the second coming 51 5, when the people of Israel enter, enter into the covenant with God. Right. Right. But, so it's kind of just a step in the process. The, yes, the, it's, it's, a, it's a critical step in the process. But it is, it's not a statement that the new covenant has been inaugurated or begun. Again, and, and, and recognize that there's, there's a, we're, we're, we're working with a lot of, there, there's not a happy solution here, if I can put it this way. Because we don't want to say that with the covenant theologians, like, eh, we'll just replace Israel with the church. At the same time, it looks like the church is connected with the new covenant, which doesn't seem possible. So we're, we're trying to, we're trying to, you know, finesse the, because we know that the scriptures agree with themselves. We're trying to finesse the data and looking at options that might possibly work to make, make these passages fit. And this is, this is the one that I, in my mind, has the fewest problems. But recognize, there's a lot of options out there held by a lot of good people, in fact, other dispensationalists. So basically, it's just, so the death of Christ, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, is, is individually for Jews, became effective right then, okay, when he died. But, but the, but that covenant thing of the whole nation won't be until, until they break that up. Okay. Right. Okay. Good. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, you would know his name, here, but, uh, Bruce Waltke, uh, shortly after, uh, uh, Homer Kent came out with this, this view that there's a participation of the church in the New Covenant. It's a sort of an already not yet view of the uh, New Covenant. He said it's only a matter of time before they do the same thing with the kingdom. It was, it was prophetic. It, it was, it was really an interesting statement, uh, that, that Waltke makes. Um, Walkie's a covenant theologian. But he started out as a dispensationalist. And he he went, he took that track by saying, okay, there's there's an already yet, not yet aspects of the kingdom. The kingdom's partly now, partly later. And so he went sort of, he sort of fast-tracked through progressive dispensationalism all the way to covenant theology to say that the kingdom is in effect. And and he said, and when, when Homer Kent said, well, we can do this with a new covenant. He said, it's, it's, he said this is the beginning of the end for dispensationalism. So it's, it's only a matter of time before they join us. I haven't read anything by Blazing and Bach and some of those guys recently. Do you, are they on that track, more or less, uh, rapprochement with, with, uh, with, distance, with, with covenant theology, or are they still maintaining we're a third way? They're still maintaining a third way, but it's a third way that's with the feet pointed towards covenant theology. If I can put it that way, to use McCune's term, you know, the feet pointed. Some of his. Well, Christ said, it is finished on the cross. I've always heard he was referring to the Mosaic law, what was through, and then the, the new covenant was going to start 
What what is your interpretation of that? Though? Well, I think it's a fairly broad statement. It's not some. It's not only that the uh, mosaic law is done. I think that's part of it. But it's 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 the the whole of salvation. The the what is necessary for the redemption of God's people has been accomplished. That includes that the uh, the death of the tyranny of the law. Um, but I don't know if it's re- restricted to that. The, the, the issue that a lot of people have is, okay, if the Mosaic Covenant ends here, and the New Covenant doesn't start to here, what are we doing now? And, and, and again, my, my answer is, we're just not under a specific covenant at present. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 is probably the most difficult passage here because Paul says he's a minister of the New Covenant. It seems like a slam-dunk case here. Uh, where And uh, this is, like I said, I think this is probably the most difficult passage uh, for the uh, position I've, I've, I've adopted here. Um, and uh, really, I'll, 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 I'll say, again, there's a, something of a... Uh, I'll have to touch on some Greek here just for a second just to make the point you would, the, the, the fact is this, this verse has a very strange feature to it in the Greek it just actually doesn't have a the you know I am a minister of the new covenant um, it actually the, the the is left out um, which is really strange you would expect that he, if he's talking about the new covenant you know, that's described in the Old Testament, he would say this one, that one, the, this one, that one. But instead he, he uses no covenant article at all, which in Greek can mean a lot of different things. Uh, but what it seems to suggest here is that he is he is not making the statement that perhaps uh, is most obvious to us in our English translation. Uh, and uh, the suggestion here is that he is a minister of a new covenant kind of ministry. And I recognize, and I'll, I'll admit uh, right up front, that that, even even as I say it, sounds a little bit thin. And, uh, and, and I, have to, I have to admit that. At the same time, um, my pushback is that, that I do have a problem with one text but the, but the covenant theologians say the new covenant is in effect and basically whitewashing the whole of the Old Testament, I think I actually have a much greater problem, if I could, if I could put it that way. And I, I don't want to uh, uh, punt or, or, or minimize my, my problem, which is a very real problem by saying they have a bigger one. But the fact is, that's part, part of the tension here is what we, what we have to do is try and figure out how to make all of the texts fit and uh, that that to me seems to be the uh, the easiest solution most natural one but uh, you can disagree would you go there, would you say that's the same thing it's going in Hebrews 9:15 where it says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance and he seems like he's speaking there of of elect you know whether Jew or Gentile yeah it, Hebrews is a Hebrews is a complex book because it's written to Jews. They're written to Jews who have become Christians, or at least profess to have become Christians, minimally. Um, and so they're, 
that tension is always there. Is he talking to Jews as Jews, or is he talking to Jews as members of of the church? And and so that that's always a that's always that's always in the back of your mind when you're reading reading Hebrews, because uh, there's a lot of references here to the covenants uh, that the Jews enjoy, and uh, it's that I guess that I, I, that's my answer is I've got a, there's there's quite a bit of wiggle room in the in the book of Hebrews for that, and there's there's a lot of debate there for that reason. Okay. We're going to actually sort of revisit this, and hopefully, and, and I think it will become a little bit clearer when we talk about the kingdom, because when we talk about the kingdom, we have much the same issue, because the kingdom is described as something in the Old Testament that doesn't seem anything like what we are experiencing today, and yet again, there's New Testament references that seem to suggest that we've got some sort of preliminary participation in the kingdom uh, as a church and so that's that's going to be a, it's going to be something very difficult to work through uh, but we'll do that at the, probably at the end of next time perhaps uh, in two in two weeks but let's go to our main topic for tonight then the hermeneutics of dispensationalism I use the word hermeneutics simply mean here by the, the method of Bible study uh, how do we read our Bibles? Let me see if I can set the historical table here. Remember, historically, dispensationalism arose because exegetes recognized distinctions between Israel and the church by means of their interpretive technique, the way they read the Bible. And for, by de- for decades, it was agreed by both sides that the dispensationalists held to a what's sometimes called a literal hermeneutic, uh, while di- non-dispensationalists did not. Okay. And so, so we've got this this whole this whole thing. You know, th- what, when I when I when I when I when I when I'm looking at the Old Testament and saying this is exactly what the Old Testament says about the New Covenant and about the Kingdom, and we can't reinterpret it to mean something other than what it said. What I am what I am pushing for there is what we might call a literal hermeneutic, one that says this passage means what the original author and the original readers thought it meant. And we can't just change that meaning uh, just because uh, we we live in a new age, okay? And so it's widely agreed that dispensationalists held to a literal hermeneutic, but uh, non-dispensationalists held to something of a of a of a of a figurative or a typological or something less than a a normal uh, hermeneutic. Now, steady growth. Uh, over the last couple of decades, um, in in what was sometimes called the grammatical historical method, has been has has resulted in everyone saying we believe in the grammatical historical method of interpretation. So dispensationalists say that, covenant theologians say that. Everybody says we believe in the grammatical historical uh, method of interpretation, and so we and so the so the differences sort of got a little bit muddied okay so let let's see if we can't uh, revive some of those differences again you know I'm not trying to split the church wide open here but I think there are there is a difference that sort of has been uh, has been sort of uh, you know uh, uh, smoothed over that it still exists here so what I'd like to do here 
is uh, look at this idea of a literal hermeneutic. Well, first of all, we have to say what it's not. Uh, when we're talking about a literal hermeneutic, it does not mean that there aren't figures of speech in the Bible. You know, sometimes you know, you'll, you'll, uh, the dispensationalist will be derided. You believe, you know, when Jesus called Herod an old fox, he actually thought that Herod was a little furry animal with red, red hair and tail. You, you, you dispensationalists are such morons. Uh, but, but he recognized that there are figures of speech that are part of normal speech. If we tell some, say someone is a fox, well, it could mean a couple of different things. It could mean, it could mean that she's an attractive woman. It could, it could, it could mean that, that a fox is a sly person. You know, the devil is a sly old fox. If I could catch him, I'd put him in a box. I don't know if you sang that when you were a kid, but we did. Um, um, and so, so, so when we talk about this, we're, we're not saying that the devil is a fox or that a woman is a fox. What we are saying is that she has features of a fox, and that's a figure of speech. That's part of normal communication. We use those kinds of metaphors and similes and, you know, synecdoches and other different kinds of figures of speech all the time. Literalism does not mean, secondly, that we have to reduce the basic unit of language into words rather than sentences, okay? Uh, some... Uh, if you, if you read Vern Poitras, who's a, a well-regarded covenant theologian, he says this is what dispensationalists do. They reduce the basic unit of language to a word, and so all we're concerned about is we're fixated on word studies, and uh, we make words mean only one thing, rather than seeing words as having a semantic range. Now, that's not true. Uh, dispensationalists have always seen that the basic unit of language is a, is a sentence, a clause, effectively, and that is it's, it is it is a combination of words within a context. Thirdly, here literalism is not a denial of what I call here the analogy of faith or a comparison of scripture with scripture. Okay, so sometimes that is the claim that's made. Well, okay, yes, the Old Testament said X. But the New Testament says why, and the New Testament is, you know, better. It's newer. It's more up-to-date. It's more advanced. And so when we read that, if they conflict, then we always have to take the New Testament and say the Old Testament was a little bit fuzzy. We didn't know exactly what it meant. And so we can sort of dismiss it and take the New Testament reading. Okay? And so uh, literal interpretation is not a denial uh, of of, of the of the analogy of faith that we have to compare scriptures with scripture and make it fit. And again, that's what we were trying to do. I mean, I, I used to learn a Latin word. I, I don't know why I put that in there, uh, but uh, it, it, that's basically what we were doing with the new covenant. I've got to figure out how all of these texts fit together. And that's 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 what's called the analogy of faith or comparing scripture uh, with scripture, uh, the comparison of scriptures uh, with each other to try and make sense of the whole. Okay, And so the uh, so literalism is not any of those three things. So what is it? So what do I mean when I say I hold to a literal hermeneutic? Let me see if I can use four categories here as my definition. Uh, some have used the word normal or plain or the simple uh, reading of scripture, all of them have their, their merits and demerits. Uh, but rather than try and come up with a single word that makes everybody happy, let's see if I can define what literal hermeneutics is with a, with a series of four uh, statements here. First of all, 
here's a big word here, but the univocal nature of language. And what I mean by univocal is simply one voice. Okay, that's you can see it. Uni, one vocal voice. That what we're saying here is that the Bible speaks with one signification in any one context. The Bible means one thing. It can't mean a second thing later. Okay? It means one thing. Words may have semantic ranges, but uh, can bring a single meaning to any one propositional context. You know, so like we say, fox can mean three different things. It can mean a literal fox. It could mean, oh, I don't know how we got into this, but, uh, but it could be an attractive woman. It could mean a sly person. Okay, But in any one context, it can't mean all three or even two of those three. It can only mean one of those things, which is what we mean by one voice, univocal. So if the scriptures say that, for instance, a, a wolf and a lamb will lie down together, then it means one thing. Okay, It can't mean two things. You know, we, we have good evidence that the Old Testament saints thought that that meant that wolves and sheep would lie down together, as it seems. Now, in the, in the, in the, in, in the, with covenant theology, they would say, well, maybe the Old Testament saints did think it this way, and, and maybe that's what the Old Testament author meant. But we know now that it actually means something broader or something different. It means that there will be tranquility. Okay. It doesn't actually mean that there will be literal wolves and literal uh, lambs lying down with each other, but that it will be a general, there will be a general aura or ambiance of peacefulness and, uh, and non-aggression. And that's all that they meant. Even though the Old Testament folks all thought it was literal, there it actually means something else. And we know this now because wolves and and sheep aren't lying down together, and we know we're in the New Covenant, so, therefore, it must mean something else. Okay. Does that, make, does that, does that follow? Yeah, I just, I can't, how can they say that, that it's a time of tranquility, even in the broadest terms, now? Yeah. Right. D- do they apply that to the kingdom down the road, like the fully realized version of the kingdom? Well, again, there's, there's, there's such variation. In fact, I, 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 that's one I actually looked up once. I looked up that verse in six different commentaries written by covenant theologians, and all six of them had had a completely different reading of those verses. So it depends. I mean, are you talking about a post-millennial variety of covenant theologian? Are you talking about an amillennial, which would mean it's sort of a spiritualized peace. There's peace within the church. Okay, uh, the, the post-millennialist says, you know, things are actually, peace is actually building, and we're moving towards the, the, the utopian uh, kingdom on earth. Uh, so so there's, there's not any single understanding here. But what it doesn't mean is sheep and wolves lying down together, because that doesn't happen today. Wolves and sheep just don't get along. So it must mean something lesser than that. Or, or, yeah, something different, effectively. So, so this is the seminal uh, principle of language, and it's axiomatic. We have to assume it in order to disprove it. When I say something, I mean one thing by it, which is why we can communicate. 
if I meant three things at a time when I was talking to you, uh, we would have a great deal of time communicating to one another, with one another. It's an axiomatic principle of language. A sentence can only mean one thing at one time. Now, of course, there are there are exceptions, and you can have a pun uh, where you actually mean two things at once, but you can't have a whole language system built on puns. Uh, yeah, there, there may be you, know, you may know somebody who 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 makes a lot of puns and he's a funny guy, but but most of the time, even the funniest guy who uses the more puns than anybody else you know, ninety percent of the time he's not talking in puns. He's talking normally most of the time. Okay. Applied to Bible study methods, this principle means that the Bible, since it is written in a normal manner, it's like any other book in the sense that it uses the same kinds of words and language. With respect to grammar, syntax, genres, figures, etc., conceals no additional hidden meanings that were inaccessible by standard grammatical, historical, literary means. So the Old Testament saint understood correctly that it was a wolf and a sheep, and that was the right understanding, and it means the same thing today that it meant back then. Okay, Like all human languages, it engages in census plenier or double senses rarely, and only with clear indicators to convey this intention. Every once in a while you'll, you'll, you'll see something, uh, like for instance Caiaphas's statement here, uh, that uh, it's better for one man to die for the sins of the na- for, for, for the nation, and, and and the statement is made. He he actually spoke more than he knew. Okay, he was he was saying, you know, preserve the nation by killing this rabble rouser, and so we'll, we'll put it put an end to this rebellion, and then we'll be good in the eyes of Rome. But actually, if you look at that those words, and you can think of them as, yeah, here is a man. It's and it's good that he is dying for the nation in the sense of. Of, of redemption, okay, and so we look at that and say that is a that is a, a very interesting statement that Caiaphas made. That actually is a double on. He said more than he intended, you know. And 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 looking back at it, we can say there's a real irony in what he said. But but that but even even the scripture writers points out that he spoke more than he knew. It, this, this this was not this is not a normal use of language. This is something of a of an oddity. Is that like when the disciples said, we are well, we will die with you, we'll go to Jerusalem and die with you, or something like that. And he said, no, you are going to die for, you know, for me, but not now. Like he, he said something like, yes, you will indeed drink, oh, you will indeed drink from this cup, yeah. but you don't really know what you're saying. Right. Yeah. So, very rarely do we see a, a passage of Scripture having two meanings at the same time. Um, and in no case... Can there be new meaning invested in words after the fact? A statement made in the Old Testament had precisely the same meaning to its immediate readers that it does to its modern readers. And to affirm otherwise is introduce uncertainty to the whole of Scripture. Now, uh, perhaps we could, and perhaps this is, uh, let's, let's think in terms of reading the New Testament with this double meaning. You know, it says that when we when we die, we shall be with Christ. Well, maybe you know, seeing Christ, you'll be able to see with new eyes things about God that you didn't know 
know before. You're not actually going to see him with your eyes. You're just going to know certain things at death that you didn't know previously. Okay, and that's kind of like seeing Christ. Well, what if what if we took all of the promises, the great and grand promises of the New Testament, as to what's going to happen when we die and what's going to how the end of the age is going to conclude? What if we took all of those promises and said, well, you know, you might have double meanings there, and it may not be meaning exactly what you think it means. Well, that would, like I say, it would it would lend uncertainty to the whole of Scripture. Uh, we expect the promises of the New Testament to be fulfilled in all of their literalness. You know, we've, we, in some cases, we've wagered our very lives and our futures on the fact that the promises of Scripture are going to be fulfilled literally. And so did the Old Testament saints, only to find out, no, no, that's not really what they meant. I, th- I think that I, I think we add uncertainty to the whole of Scripture when we suggest uh, that uh, that the meanings of words and particularly promises and covenants can morph over time. So that's the first univocal nature of language. Second, and closely aligned to this, sort of already introduced it, is the jurisdiction of authorial intent. So who gives the meaning to the words? Well, the original author gives the meaning to the words. So not only does the meaning of any given text remain static over time, it also depends on authorial intent for its meaning. So like the previous example, the jurisdiction of authorial intent is as old as creation. You have no, that's, that's one thing you have ownership of. Uh, no matter what the world can take away from you, you have ownership of the meaning of your own words. Part of the image of God and man. Correct biblical interpretation demands that the meaning that the original author intended in giving a text is the meaning that that text retains perpetually. Fee and Stewart have this uh, little statement that they make. A text can never mean what it never meant. Okay, Who gets to decide what a text means? Well, not me. The author determines what the, what the text m- meant and means. And so I am trying to find out what the author meant. That's, that's always the goal of permanent. What did he mean? Of course, the intention of the author can sometimes be difficult to discern. We can't enter into his mind or interview him after the fact. Say, what, what exactly did you mean by that? Can you clarify? We just don't have that opportunity. And so sometimes we get, we get texts that are a little bit hard to understand. As, as Paul says, some of, them, some of the texts of Scripture are hard to understand. But such measures are not necessary because the meaning is communicated grammatically through the lens of known historical context of the author. We piece it together, we ascertain meaning by what is written, and we confirm that meaning by asking whether it's historically possible that those words meant that. Okay, So we we, we look at the words and say, it looks like this is what the author meant. And then we sort of back up and say, is it possible that he meant that? And if it is historically reasonable uh, that he could have said those words in that context, at that juncture in history, then we accept that at, 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 at face value. Okay. So when the biblical authors spoke of physical blessings of the New Covenant, for instance, they were thinking of physical blessings. They were thinking of showers in the wilderness. And they were thinking of literal grain growing out of the literal soil. And they were and they were anticipating that 
lambs and wolves and lions would get along, and that when children put their hands in the in the uh, nest of a cobra, that they would be safe. And and they they literally thought in those terms. They didn't. They did not expect uh, interpreters to come along later and say, "Well, that's not exactly what they meant." Okay, so when when the original author spoke of Israel specifically, when there's a the house of Judah and the house of Israel, and there's you know there there these you know the tribe of the, the various tribes are mentioned. Uh, they, they they meant those things. They're talking about ethnic Jews, not the church. Okay, that they're, they're different animals. So to interpret Scripture otherwise is to resignify an author's words without his permission, thus banishing the original author from his own words. Okay, those words some, mean something other than what you meant, Moses. Sorry. We get to decide what they mean now. Thirdly here, and again related, is the unitary author of scripture, authorship of Scripture. See, non-dispensationalists commonly will look at the unique situation here with inspiration and assert that since the Bible possesses dual authorship, God stands over the human writer, that maybe what we've got is God meaning one thing and the human author meaning something else. Okay, And so the human author meant one thing when he was, was writing, but God actually intended more or, or, or additional things that the human author didn't know. In fact, these authors could be set at odds with one another. And I said, and I said here, since God is not bound by the constraints of history, it's argued, he could have intentionally inserted meanings uh, into the text that the human author did not n- not only didn't know, but couldn't have known. So the human author was able to write more than he knew, much as Caiaphas did. Uh, this is hermeneutically troubling, opening the human author to charges of errancy. He technically wrote errors, because he, he meant something other than what God meant. Uh, which I think is is effectively the definition of what an error is. And uh, I think it opens up God to the charge of perpetuating deceit. So the human author said, yeah, it's going to be wolves and sheep. And everybody said, yeah, cool, that's going to be wolves and sheep. And God said, psych, you know, not. It's, It's actually not going to be exactly what you think it is. Okay. Now, it's certainly true here, excuse me, a grammatical historical hermeneutics insists that there was a perfect confluence of the human author and God, such that they wrote the same thing. What the human author wrote was the word of God. That's the definition of inspiration, really, in a nutshell. God sent, said and meant exactly what the human authors said and meant. In fact, if this is not true, then the whole value of biblical inspiration is lost, and the doctrine becomes entirely superfluous. Because here are are men writing errantly, even though God sort of, you know, massages the material uh, to mean what he intended after all. Now, it's certainly true that God knows exhaustively the details and implications of any prophetic utterance better than the author knew. Remember, we've got these statements here made in Daniel and Peter that they long to look into the timing of these events. You know, Daniel says, when are these things going to happen? And what does God reply? It's not for you to know. <laughs> and so, and so, so he, so 
God obviously knows more of the implications and details than the human author did. But what the human author wrote is exactly what God intended. He just didn't write as completely as he might have had he had the whole mind of God. And again, First Peter is that they long to look into the details of, of what... Uh, of what's go, what's going on here, and they're they're barred from that. Some of that information is not available to them. Yes, I'm sorry, maybe I missed something. But would, a few minutes ago, you're talking about Caiaphas and, mm-hmm. and saying that he meant one thing, but but really, uh, it it actually meant more than what he was thinking about. Right. But then, what we what you just said here about these rules here seems to counter. Right. What? What? No. What's the? What's the synthesis here? What? What I'm saying is, what Caiaphas did, and and when is it? Matthew points out the irony of what Caiaphas said. He's not saying, okay, this is a new hermeneutical. This is a hermeneutical technique that we can now apply to the whole of the Old Testament. Oh, okay. What he's saying here is, isn't this ironic? What Caiaphas said. He said more than he intended. In fact, if you take his words another way, it actually is is a cool prophecy. You know, a, 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 actually, a, a very interesting statement. That so he he thinks he's going to have the uh, the nation saved physically from the Romans by eliminating a rabble rouser. Right. And really, his prophecy is true, but it didn't wasn't fulfilled in the way he was thinking. This is actually a man dying. To, to supply redemption uh, for his people. Oh, uh, I mean, I that sounds good, but mm-hmm. that, that doesn't that does that not or does it violate that authorial? No, I don't think it's a violation. I think the again, because Caiaphas met right what he said in one way. Shouldn't it mean that right? But I, but, but, but I think what Matthew's doing there is saying or it's, it's John. Uh, what John is saying there is that there's this is an irony. Oh, okay. And we can we can actually have that kind of an irony that now that I'm put on the spot I can't think of one. So we, uh, but so literal hermeneutic allows for irony. Was that? Well, it's Our not so much that literalism is out, but you know, well, let's say that you know I you know there's some somebody commits a crime in a library, and uh, you know the police are called in. And I, I work in a library, and I've got some gigantic books there, and uh, and 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 the culprit is hiding. In, in the middle of the stacks, and uh, and he's trying to get away, trying to get out the back door of the seminary behind the library, and, and a policeman off, didn't know what to do, so he picked up this gigantic dictionary and threw it at the man, struck him in the back, and knocked him over. And uh, and so you know the uh, so the newspaper says uh, man booked by the police, and, and and we laugh at that because he uh, he was booked. Uh, it means two things at once. There's an irony there, and it's funny, and okay. perhaps, perhaps the, the the guy who actually uh, who wrote the article meant to put in the double entendre. Perhaps he did, but we actually look at that and say there's an irony in that statement. Okay. I think that's what John is saying. There's an irony in what Caiaphas said, uh, but I, what what I don't think John is saying is this is the way we interpret the Old Testament. Okay. Okay, so unitary authorship. Let me just put the last one in here, and then we'll uh, uh, next time we'll talk a little bit more 
about the use of the Old Testament and the New. Uh, so the, the fourth point then is the textually based locus of meaning. Uh, purpose of human language is to reveal, not to conceal. Words and sentences are never used as secret repositories of encoded, hidden messages, but as means of clearly communicating information. That's why we call it revelation. It's designed to reveal. There's nothing external to a text that unlocks these clandestine meanings or supplements existing meanings. The meaning of the text is discoverable in the words. We don't find the meaning out later by, you know, some would suggest that the Holy Spirit's leading. You know, if you know we're reading the text, we don't know what it means, we pray really hard and the Holy Spirit comes along and says, this is the meaning of the text. Well, that's not how it works, okay? That's not how illumination works. Illumination by the Holy Spirit simply means the Holy Spirit comes along and says, you know, as you're reading through the Ten Commandments, so hum, ho, ho, okay, I've got to get through my scripture reading for the day. It, he actually arrests you and say, you didn't honor your parents last week when you sent that short clipped email that was kind of nasty to them. That's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It's not as though he comes along and says, this is what the text means, but actually arrests you and says, hey, listen to what it says. A- apply what it says and do something about this verse. And that's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. The the, the, the meaning of the text is, is plain. It's in the words. So you're okay. saying he's convicting you at that point? Yeah. He, yeah. He's, he's bringing you to into a, alignment with the words and say, I agree with those words. And in fact, I need to do something about the fact that these words are there. It's not so much that it comes along and says, you know, obey your parents. Well, you know, what that actually means here is, you know, impacts, you know what the meaning is. But the implications and the applications of those sometimes elude us because we're just, you know, we're just clipping along, reading along. Um, and that's what, the, the Holy Spirit doesn't come along and give new meaning that was uh, 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 not there by ordinary means. In fact, if, if it was, then really the Bible becomes unnecessary uh, because the meaning's no longer in the words. The word is in the encounter with the Holy Spirit above the words. Okay, but the, the meaning is in the words. That's where it is. Nor can uh, can later revelation come along and supply new meaning uh, to the words, uh, which again is is popular among uh, uh, covenant theologians. Everybody thought that these words mean meant this, but new revelation came along, and so we're forced to say, no, it must not have meant that after all, even though that's the plain meaning. Uh, Later revelation doesn't change meanings. Okay, uh, sometimes it can clarify or give additional detail, but it doesn't take the original meaning and turn it on its head so that it means something totally different. Okay, so that's what we mean here when we said say that we hold to a uh, a literal hermeneutic. Now next week we'll try and put some practical fa- a practical face to this, so we understand why it's such a big deal. Uh, that we hold to a literal method for understanding the Bible. Is that a question? No. Okay. Any uh, final questions here? Sorry, we ended. We always seem to end awkwardly, but uh, hopefully uh, we can we can fit this uh, all together next time when we put a practical face on it here. So right now you've got the theory. We'll we'll, we'll try and make it practical next next time. Okay. See you next week.